0: For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Lord, add your blessing to your word. And Lord, I would pray for our brother. Oh, God, thank you for the family. We're here to love you, to know you. And we ask that you would teach us through the gifting of Pastor Jonathan and by your word, by your spirit. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, we are continuing our journey this morning through Paul's letter to the Romans, and last week we were looking at verses eleven through. 15, where Paul says that he longed to see these Romans, to come to them in person, to be with them. And the reason is that he might impart to them some spiritual gift, which we saw was spiritual strengthening. He wanted to be with them, to expound the scriptures, to teach them the word of God, to preach the gospel, the whole counsel of God to them in order that they might be strengthened, built up, and able to perform the work of the ministry that God calls every member of the body to perform. In verse 14, Paul says that he is a debtor, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. He is one who knows that he has a single debt to pay. And that debt is a debt of love that he owes to God for having been saved. And so he is Ready to preach, he says, in verse 15. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. He's compelled. In fact, he tells the Corinthians, he says, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. He had to teach and preach this message because it's not his message. It was God's message. And God had compelled him to go after saving him powerfully. Paul knew what it was to be a saved man, a person who had been redeemed, rescued. And now he wants others to experience the same thing. So that brings us to our text for today, which is two verses. And really, you could argue these verses are the crux of the entire epistle to the Romans, verses 16 and 17. And they are as well the verses that make Christianity what it is, uniquely Because, as we read, the just shall live by faith. This is the doctrine of faith alone that saves. We are saved by faith alone, through grace, because of grace. God's unmerited favor to us. So let's pick it up here, verse 16. I am not ashamed, for I am not ashamed, of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek So the first thing is this thought that Paul mentions is linked directly to verse 15, where he says, I am ready to preach the gospel. And then immediately he says, for I'm not ashamed of this gospel. I'm ready to herald it. Now, why would Paul bring this up at this point? Why is he bringing up this concept of shame? Shame, this word in Greek means literally to put in a position of disfigurement. That's what shame is. It's a disfigurement. And so he says, because the true gospel can put one in a position of feeling disfigured, feeling ashamed, shamed in the eyes of the world. The question is, why? Well, the true gospel, brothers and sisters, is offensive. It's a stumbling block. It's offensive to the unbeliever by design. We may not get that sense listening to a lot of popular Christian teaching and preaching today. But make no mistake. The gospel is offensive. Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, 17 and 18. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, there were divisions in the church at Corinth. In fact, uh, the people had split into groups, factions of those who followed Paul and those who followed Cephas, And those who followed another teacher named Apollos. And some said, we don't follow any of those men. We follow Christ. And Paul said, is Christ divided? (laughs) And on the heels of that, he says, I didn't come to baptize. My job is not to make disciples for myself here, to have a groupies for Paul. It's this, but to preach the gospel. Not with the wisdom of words. That is to say, the wisdom of men. Lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is, now notice, notice it affects people in two ways. The message of the cross is foolishness to whom? Those who are perishing, those who are being destroyed, those who are in the process of dying on their way to eternal destruction. And, or but, to us who are being saved, it is power, the power of God. Brothers and sisters, our hope as Christians is in a Jewish carpenter who was crucified on a tree 2,000 years ago. That's the hope of our soul for all souls for all eternity. Does that sound like foolishness to you? Sounds like foolishness to the world. Look at verse 21 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, just a few verses down from where we just were. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. God in his wisdom decreed that man could not come to know him through his own wisdom, through worldly wisdom. Why did he do that? Because then man would have something to boast about, right? Those who were smartest those who have the most intellectual horsepower could say, I I figured it out. I'm saved because I used my wisdom to know who God is, to understand his attributes. But God says, no, he alone is holy and he shares his glory with no one. And so, no man, through his own wisdom, can come to know God. Verse 22, for Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. That's what they each were looking for for salvation. The Jews wanted a sign. They wanted a sign to know that their Messiah was, had come. The Greeks, their interest is wisdom, the wisdom of the world. They were the sophisticated of the, the culture. And they wanted salvation through knowledge, deep knowledge. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. Stumbling block, scandalon. That's where we get the word scandal from. (laughs) The gospel is a scandal to the Jews. It's a block that they can't get around. They just trip over it. And to the Greeks, who are the wise, in air quotes, Foolishness. Christ crucified is foolishness to them. The Greek word there for foolishness is moria. That's where we get the the English word moron. They thought it was moronic. Absolute absurdity. I heard um, Pastor John MacArthur share this example, which I thought was really poignant, really good on this particular point to illustrate it. And he said, um, he was pointing out that in Rome, um, it doesn't exist anymore today. It's been archived in a museum, but there was a, a piece of graffiti on a wall um, in a house that was etched in plaster, and it was um, near a hill that's called uh, the Palatine Hill. And this graffiti is known as Alexamenos Graffito. And what it was is um, a representation of the crucifixion of Christ and a man who had come to worship before this crucified one. Except the image depicts a cross, and the one who's on the cross has the head of a donkey, a jackass. And the inscription at the bottom says, Alexa Mena worships his God. That's a picture of what the world thinks of Christ crucified. Foolishness. Stumbling block. Can't get around it. It's foolishness. In fact, the natural man, we're taught, um, is at enmity with God in his mind. He hates the things of God. He has no category in his thinking for spiritual truth, so he dismisses it. And further, he hates it. He pours his scorn and contempt upon it. But if the message is the power of God to us who are being saved, then why, brothers and sisters, would we ever be tempted to feel shame? Clearly, Paul wouldn't have written, I'm not ashamed of the gospel if there weren't a temptation for us to feel shame, right? Well, we know that the fear of man brings what? A snare. It brings a snare. We can fall into the trap of trying to please others, can't we? Of wanting to think like they do and be liked by them, be approved by them, be thought well of. And the reason we do that is because in our sinfulness, we have a high opinion of ourselves, don't we? We value ourselves and what we think. And when someone looks down on us, thinks little of us for who we are, or what we think, what we believe, that bothers us. Did you know that Timothy felt shamed of the gospel? Paul wrote to him in 2 Timothy 1, verse 7, starting in verse 7. Second Timothy 1.7, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel, but rather embrace the sufferings for the gospel. What are those sufferings? Well, it might be being thought little of, being spoken badly of, physical persecutions. All of those fall under the umbrella of sufferings for the gospel of Christ. Verse 9 of 1 Timothy 1, who has saved us. So God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. So there it is. God is shutting out man's work as a possibility for gaining righteousness before him. He says, I won't have it. It's not according to works. This gospel, this salvation is a holy calling and it's given by grace in Christ Jesus alone, through faith. You can't do anything to earn it. True believers, even like Timothy, are not exempt from feeling shame from time to time, from being tempted to to feel ashamed of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, I'm ashamed to confess to you that I've felt shame at the gospel at times when I have had opportunities to open my mouth and speak the word of God and have chosen rather to keep silent. Fallen flesh thinks highly of itself. That must die. And we must live in the spirit and think on spiritual things and pursue the love of God. Now, what does man do to change this message, which is offensive by design, to make it unoffensive? It's called the false gospels. And they abound, don't they? We know all about false gospels. Here's how you change the message not to be offensive anymore. You remove the deity of Christ, he's not God. You remove the perfect life that he lived, you remove his virgin birth, you remove all his miracles. You remove his crucifixion and his resurrection bodily from the dead. And then his ascension to heaven where he's seated now at the right hand of the father, remove all those things. And what are you left with an emaciated gospel, which is not a gospel at all the teachings of a man we call good that we want to emulate. That's more palatable, right? It doesn't offend people. That's why it sells. That's why it's so popular and people don't want to be persecuted By speaking the truth. So they compromise it. They change it. In Paul's opening remarks to the Galatians. He says this. I marvel that you are turning away so soon. From him who called you in the grace of Christ. To a different gospel. Which is not another. But there are some who trouble you. And want to pervert the gospel of Christ. See Paul had planted several churches. In the region of Galatia. And he was profoundly stunned that they could turn so quickly from the grace of God and the true gospel to another gospel. There were Judaizers who had infiltrated the church and they were teaching that in order to be saved, you have to add to Christ. You have to be circumcised according to the law of Moses. You have to keep the law of Moses, otherwise you can't truly be saved. And Paul says this in response in Galatians 5.11, he says, And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. Right? If he had conceded the point that, okay, circumcision is necessary for salvation, the Jews wouldn't have been all up in arms and offended. He wouldn't have been persecuted. It would have been a smoother uh, message for Paul. Paul says, I can't do that. The offense of the cross would have ceased. No, the gospel shuts out the possibility of any man's efforts for salvation. And man doesn't like that. Sinful man, again, has a high opinion of himself. And so when you say you have nothing of value that you can bring to the table before God in terms of merit, in terms of righteousness, all your learning, your education, your experiences, That you bring to the table, even your best righteousness is filth, vile, garbage, refuse in the sight of God. He doesn't want it. He doesn't accept it. It's kind of interesting when you think about the gospel, the true gospel that's offensive and why it's offensive. Man would have never invented this as a religion. Because it abases man, it lowers man, it humbles the pride of man, and it exalts God. Every other religion, belief system, philosophy in the world exalts man. It says, you need to do something to curry favor with the divine, whatever that is. Christianity says, there's nothing that you can bring to the table because you're polluted by sin. Only Christ, who is the righteous one, has a sacrifice that I accept, God says. Him alone. So, having made his declaration that he is not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, Paul now goes on to give three reasons that he's not ashamed of the gospel in these two verses. And they are these. The gospel is God's power. The gospel is God's method. The gospel is God's revelation. So first, the gospel is God's power to save. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Paul, why aren't you ashamed of the gospel? Because it is the only way for a man to be saved. There is no other way. (laughs) Why does salvation require the power of God then? Well, we start with this and we always must start with this. We are dead in sin and because of sin. We are dead in trespasses and sins. Uh, We're like dead men walking in this world. When we're born into this world, we have physical bodies that live and breathe. You can communicate with people and live and recognize that people are alive, but spiritually, they're dead. And they've been dead ever since the Garden of Eden when man stopped listening to God and was cast out of the Garden he died. Ephesians two one says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. The reason that we commit sins is because we're sinners. Another way to say that is your nature dictates what you do. Jeremiah put it this way. Can the Ethiopian change the color of his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? These are rhetorical questions. The answer is, of course not. And he says, so you who are accustomed to doing evil can do good. In other words, you have no ability to do what is good in your natural state because your nature is sinful. So everything that comes out of you is sinful. We see that in Romans chapter 3 where Paul says there's none righteous, no, not one. And then he says this, their throat is an open tomb. I don't know about you, but that is uh, not a pretty picture. An open tomb means there's death inside. All that comes out of the heart of a natural sinful person is death to God, not life. Jesus said, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies, all these things that we call sins. Where do they come from? Where is their source? The heart of sinful man, because that's his nature. That's all he's able to produce. And we have this wonderful picture of Jesus coming to his dead friend, Lazarus, in John 11. And Lazarus has been dead for four days. (laughs) And we're told he stinks. He's been dead for four days. His body started to decompose. In other words, there's no life in Lazarus. And Jesus calls him forth. Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man comes forth in his grave clothes, bound. He lives. That is a wonderful picture, brothers and sisters, of all of us when we are awakened by Christ through his word. We're called from death to life. By Christ, by his voice. We must be raised to new life by the power of God. So there's the connection with power. Why is power required for salvation? Because we're dead. And it requires power, great power, to raise somebody to life, right? Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That's James. James one eighteen. We are begotten. We are birthed by God. How? By his word. By the power of his word. See, these Romans, they were already regenerate. And they were called. Paul says in Romans 1.6, Among whom you are also the called of Jesus Christ. He calls them saints. He calls them brethren. So they've been brought to life. The power of God has been effective for them. But they need... Continued life. So now that we've been brought to life. hmm, We must be justified. We must be declared righteous. In other words, the, the sinfulness that we are guilty of and the penalty for that sin must be dealt with. It must be paid. It must be paid in full in order for it to be removed from us. That's the idea of justification. We need pardon. And only Jesus has the power to pay our fine, doesn't he? Why? Because he's the righteous one. He's the only one who is qualified to take upon himself the sins of others. It takes great power to be the righteous one, to always obey in every point, and never to omit the things you ought to omit. We fail, every one of us, in every respect on that count, but Jesus succeeded. It takes great power to be justified because Jesus pays our fine. And then salvation requires power because we are under the dominion of sin, Scripture teaches us. Again, in our natural state, we are dominated by sin. So we must be what's called sanctified. We must be given power to say no to sin. How? By the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, who is the one who controls every aspect of our being. He controls our mind. He controls our hearts, our affections. He controls our wills, what we want to do. And we must be filled with him daily, the scripture teaches. So there's power for us to be sanctified so we're no longer under the dominion of sin. And then there's great power required because we are stained by sin. Brothers and sisters, we have the presence of sin in our fallen flesh, and we will until the day that we are glorified. There is great power that's required to resurrect us with glorified bodies so that we one day will live in the presence of the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth with no sin. That's glorification. So there's power required to be brought to life, power required to be justified, power that's required to be sanctified, Power that's required to be glorified. Salvation is all of those things. When scripture speaks of salvation, scripture says you have been saved, past tense. You are being saved, present tense. And you shall be saved or will be saved, future tense. That's all salvation. That's another way you can think about that is that's the whole counsel of God with regard to salvation. A lot of times we just get hung up on the first part, the justification. Yes, we need to be justified, but we also need to be sanctified and glorified. It's salvation, and there's power required for all of it. Now, the word for power that's used here, you may know this, is dynamite. The namis that's, that's where we get the English word dynamite. That is what's required. That's the level of power that's required for a person to be saved. It's not that we just need a little help. A little reform to our lives, uh, some better principles to follow so that we don't make the same mistakes we used to make and we can learn from them. No, no. We're talking about transformation from death to life and living abundantly in the spirit requires great power. Dynamite. We can think about you can think about it this way. The gospel is the medicine and the medicine has the power to cure to cure our, in- our terminal disease, which is called sin. The gospel alone has that power. So let me ask you this. If you had a terminal illness and you found a cure, and you took the cure and you were cured, would you not tell others who had the same terminal illness? But that cure is useless unless we take it, Right? If it just sits on the shelf, it doesn't do anybody any good. Um, There's people who inspect the gospel. There's people who even taste the gospel. They're around the gospel. They're familiar with it. But they never really take the gospel like medicine. They never really feed on it. Do you remember when Jesus was talking in John 6 after he had fed the 5,000? with bread, he multiplied physical bread and fish and he fed this multitude. And then he calls himself the bread of life. And he says, you must eat of my flesh and drink my blood or you have no life in you. And the people heard it and they said, this is a hard saying who can hear this. And we're told sadly that many who followed him at the end of that chapter went away and walked with him no more except for his inner disciples, right? They came to him and said, Lord, to whom shall we turn? You have the words of eternal life. And we know and we're sure that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. We must feed on Christ, brothers and sisters, daily, and feed on him alone. Be nourished by him. That's what it means to take the medicine of the gospel, to be saved, so God's power is required to bring us to life. It's required to pardon us, to sanctify us, to glorify us. And we're, we're also saying that this power is an intense power. It's the power of dynamite. But it may be not the kind of dynamite that you might expect. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Kings chapter 19. I want to illustrate this from the life of Elijah. 1 Kings chapter 19. Now, in chapter 18 hmm. Elijah has a great victory on Mount Carmel, right? You remember the the scene. Elijah's going out to Mount Carmel with these 450 prophets, false prophets of Baal. And they basically are are they having a contest, who is God? Is it Baal or is it the God of Elijah? And so Elijah brings, has them and he bring an offering, an animal and wood, and they build a big fire and he says, let the Lord, let the Lord determine that he is who he is in the midst of everyone. Let everyone see who the, the, the real God is. And of course, Elijah has that victory, right? The Lord consumes the, all the water that's poured over the sacrifice and everyone bows down and they say, the God of Elijah, he is God. So he has this great victory. And then what happens immediately on the heels of that victory, King Ahab's wicked wife, Jezebel says, Elijah, I'm going to make you the same as you did to those prophets of Baal. In other words, I'm going to kill you. And Elijah was terrified and he ran. In fact, he went far. He went down to Beersheba. He went out into the wilderness and he collapsed. And an angel of the Lord came and ministered to him and fed him two times. And the second time he fed him, we're told that Elijah went in the strength of that food for 40 days, about 200 miles south from Beersheba, the south point of Israel, all the way down to Mount Sinai, or it's called Horeb as well. He goes to Mount Sinai and he goes into a cave and he spends the night there. And let's pick it up there. Look at verse verse 9 of 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19, verse 9, And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. (laughs) And the Lord says, Go out and stand before me on the mountain. And then he passes by Elijah in the form of a whirlwind, a powerful whirlwind that breaks the rocks of the mountain. And then he comes in an earthquake and shakes the mountain. And then a fire. And it's interesting the scripture says, But the Lord was not in the wind, the whirlwind, nor was he in the earthquake nor was he in the fire. And then what? A still, small voice. So what is God doing? God is revealing that he is all-powerful. A mighty whirlwind, great earthquake, a fire. This is God. And yet, it says that he was not in any of those things except the implication is in the small voice, the still small voice. See, that's where his true power is manifested, brothers and sisters, in his word. And he speaks to the hearts of his people quietly. He's telling Elijah, Elijah, you are not alone. Think back on your victory on Mount Carmel, where I demonstrated myself before all those people. You're not alone. I'm doing my work in Israel, in the hearts of my people. In fact, I've got 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You're not alone, Elijah. Now, do you trust me that I can accomplish my work in my way, in my people? What are you doing here, Elijah? In other words, you shouldn't have left, left your post because you're discouraged that the people are not responding to the word of God the way you expect them to. I still have my people, my remnant, and they are responding to my word. Be faithful. This is the dynamite of God. He speaks powerfully to those who have ears to hear. But to the rest, quietly. They don't see it. Paul is unashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is God's power to save. But he saves in his way. And how is that? By faith. So here's point number two. Paul's not ashamed in the gospel of Christ because it's God's method. It's God's method. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. That's the qualifier. The gospel does not save everybody. It only saves those who believe, those who have faith. Now, the word that is used by Paul in the Greek there for believes, this is a little bit of technical grammar, but it's the present active participle. It's just a fancy way of saying continuing action. In other words, the gospel is the power of God to everyone who is still believing, who keeps on believing, who believes and does believe. Not somebody who made a decision for Christ years ago one time and then doesn't evidence anything in their lives regarding obedience to the faith. Regarding love for Christ. No, this is a continuing action. Believing those who are believing are those who have the power of God for salvation. And when the scripture um, speaks of believing, it also identifies those who believe again in air quotes, but who don't have true salvation. It's like uh, 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, right? Or it's like Jesus in John chapter two, right before his conversation with Nicodemus, um, he's doing mighty miracles, works. And at the end of chapter two, we're told, In verse 23, and when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs, which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man. So there's a kind of believism where someone says they believe and they seem to believe. But notice they're not truly believers because Jesus didn't commit himself to them. He knew that their hearts were still hard. When Jesus is speaking with the Pharisees in John 8, similar example. He says that he spoke or as he spoke, many believed in him. That includes the Pharisees, the same Pharisees who he then says, you are of your father, the devil. (laughs) Jesus says, if you abide in my word, then you are my disciples. Indeed, there's the perseverance. There's the lifestyle of obedience that's required. How do we know if we believe to salvation, loved ones, and not just believe as the Pharisees believed? Romans 1, 5. Saving grace always leads to the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith or or obedience to the faith. That must be there. The Romans delighted Paul in his spirit because he knew their obedience had become known to all. It had sounded forth to the entire ancient world that they were followers of Christ. So true belief, true faith is never divorced from obedience to the faith. And it perseveres. You know what else is interesting about true faith? It's never a blind leap of faith. Some people say, well, you just have to have faith. Right in our cultural context, people say, what really matters about your faith is not so much what you believe in, but that you have sincerity of belief. Just believe what you, what you believe with sincerity, and it's good. It's acceptable. That's blind faith. That is never what we're called to as Christians. Some people say, um, well, we exercise faith all the time. When we get on uh, you know, a, a bus, a train, we don't have trains around here. <laughs> but uh, you know, when you're go, go, you go to a restaurant and you sit down to a meal, um you don't know who's in the kitchen preparing your food. You have faith that they're doing it the right way. Or you take a flight in an airplane and, you know, you trust that somebody's up there flying the plane. <laughs> but that's more of the law of statistical probability, right? We rationalize in our minds and we say, well, millions of people do this all the time. The likelihood that something bad is going to happen to me pretty small. Okay, I'm willing to take the chance. It's not faith. Real faith is informed. It understands propositions, truth. It's directed. It points to an object. And that object must be saving. Hebrews 11.6 But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So there's two things I want to call out here. Two things about genuine faith. One, it always points to the person of God. And two, it always points to the work of God, the person of God and the work of God. So notice in Hebrews eleven six, he who comes to God must believe that he is. In other words, who he's revealed himself to be in Scripture. You must embrace that, all of that, or you don't believe who he is. And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In other words, true faith always believes the work of God. That he can do what he promises to do. Paul had that kind of faith. When he was urging Timothy not to be ashamed of the testimony of Christ, nor of Paul as his prisoner, as he said in 2 Timothy 1, he said this in verse 12, 2 Timothy 1.12, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day. See, Paul has the right object of his faith, God, as he's revealed himself to be in Christ, and he's persuaded in the work of God that God was able to keep what? What? Paul's soul until the very end that he would not be ashamed in that last day. His faith is not in vain. But to the contrary, he would be rewarded rewarded. So Paul had that kind of faith. Abraham also had that kind of faith. In Romans 4:17, Paul says of Abraham, who is the father of all the faithful, all who have faith?" As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed. God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. So notice first, he had the right object of faith, right? God. Who contrary to hope in hope believed so that he became the father of many nations. According to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. There's the promise. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. So we see the pattern again and again, right object of faith and that God keeps his promise. He does what he says he will do. And then here's the wonderful part in verse 22. And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Accounted to him. That's a it's, a it's an accounting term. It means to fill one's bank account. In other words, when Abraham believed God, his spiritual bank account went from zero, from empty to being totally full because God had made a deposit. Or think about it this way. Abraham went from being under the condemnation of God to being in right standing with God, fully justified, declared righteous. This is the key, loved ones. Righteousness has always, always been by faith alone. By believing God's word, that's what we're talking about here. You want to make it really simple? Do you believe God's word? who he's revealed himself to be and the work that he has done in the person of Jesus Christ, because that's who he's revealed himself to be. Think about Adam in the garden. Where did he go wrong? He stopped believing the word of God. God said in the day that you eat of that tree, referring to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And the devil comes along and he says the exact opposite. He says, you will not surely die. There's the lie. And Adam and Eve believed the lie. They stopped believing the truth. So what's God's way of salvation? To stop believing the lie and to start believing the truth again. Right? To believe God. Now, stay with me. Here's where this gets really good for us. Verse 23 of Romans 4. Now, it was not written, what? That This was accounted to him for righteousness because he believed God. It was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. There is the true faith again. Us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. There's the object of faith And who raised up Jesus from the dead? God did. We saw that at the beginning of Romans. He was raised by the Father, by the Spirit, and by himself. The triune God raised Jesus from the dead. Do you believe that? If you do, you're believing in the work of God. And that belief, that faith, is counted to you as righteousness. It's good news, brothers and sisters. So there's a kind of believism which doesn't save, but there's true faith that always saves. And this is the nature of that true faith. Paul further qualifies his statement that the gospel is the power of God to everyone who believes. And he says this for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Now, Paul, why are you making this distinction between Jew first and also the Greek? And does it matter that the gospel goes forward to the Jew first Doesn't it just go out to everybody? Well, here's the the fact. The gospel went out to the Jew first. Historically, right? Think about this. When God made his covenant with Abraham, which he then... Isaac, his son. And then he later reiterated... Jacob, whom he renamed Israel. God kept the promise that he made to Abraham... You will be a father of many nations. Your descendants will be as multiplied, as numerous, as the stars in the sky, as the sand on the seashore, as the dust of the earth. We're told that when famine brought Jacob's descendants into Egypt, there were 75 of them who went to Egypt. You know how many came out 400 years later? 600,000 men plus women plus children. So more over a million people came out. God fulfilled his promise to Israel. He multiplied them. And then they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years before settling in Canaan, in the promised land. Israel was God's nation. It was separate from all the other nations. And God's function through Israel was that they should be a light to the nations, that they should proclaim the virtues of God. The goodness of God, all the attributes of God to the nations, they were to be separate. That's why they had all the restrictions and laws that they did relating to separation, to narrowness, because they were to be an example to the nations of how different they are, because God is different. God is holy. He is separate from sin and from the ways of the world. Listen to how Paul describes the privilege and position of Israel as a nation. And he he does this in Romans chapter nine. I'm just going to read the first five verses. I tell the truth in Christ and I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is overall the eternally blessed God. Amen. See, the gospel is not just a New Testament phenomenon. It was first preached, remember where? In the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelion. For God said the seed of the woman will bruise the serpent's head and the serpent will only bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. That's a picture of Christ who is to come, who would crush Satan. And Satan would only bruise Christ's heel and he did that at the cross. But he really crushed his own head by putting Christ on the cross, right? By seeing Christ put on the cross. Later, this was preached to Abraham, this gospel. We're told by Paul in Galatians 3 eight and the scripture, 3:8, excuse me. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, "In you all the nations shall be blessed." So the gospel was heard by Abraham. And then it was later preached to the Jews. Remember the beginning of Paul's letter to the Romans? He said that he was separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his holy prophets in the scriptures. Right. So the Jews had the oracles of God. They had the revelation of God in the scriptures concerning the son. They knew not who he was specifically, but what they did know was that he would be a suffering servant and that he would be glorified after his suffering. So they had the gospel preached to them. The gospel was first preached to the Jews. I think that's what he's saying here. The gospel first goes to the Jew because it first went to the Jew. And then when we get to Acts, to Acts chapter 13, Paul is in Antioch of Pisidia, and he goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he's preaching the gospel to the Jews there, that Jesus is the seed of David and the promised Messiah, And many seem to believe and follow Paul and Barnabas. That's what we're told. It seems hopeful. Turn to Acts chapter 13, just to follow this thread here. Acts chapter 13. And look at verse 44. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy And contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. I have set you as a light for the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So the gospel goes to the Jew first. Paul went to the synagogues and he reasoned with the Jews. But when they judged themselves unworthy of eternal life by rejecting Jesus as Messiah, he says, I'm turning to the Gentiles. And then he quotes Isaiah 49 and he says, I've set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. That is spoken of the servant of the Lord, who is the Messiah to come, Jesus Christ. In other words, God's intention all along from the beginning is that he would be a light to the nations. His gospel goes forward to everyone. It went to the Jew first, but it goes out to the nations, to the Greeks. Praise God, right? Because we are the nations. We're saved by grace. One comment, and we're going to get to this, Lord willing, when we get to Romans chapter 11. The Jews are still being saved. Now, some people believe that they're not being saved and that there's, they're going to be saved at some point in the future. But Paul argues at the beginning of chapter 11, God has not turned away from his people because he is exhibit A. He himself is a Jew who is saved. And he says, Remember the faithfulness of God. He has a remnant. He always has. Elijah, Paul, Creekside. God is saving the Jews today. Now, the question is whether he's going to save in a large number in the future, or if it's more gradual over time. We'll get to that when we get that discussion. But (laughs) I wanted to make the point. God is still saving the Jews. Even though partial blindness has come to Israel, he's using jealousy to provoke the Jews by the nations, by the multitudes who are coming in. That's exactly what happened here in Antioch of Pisidia. They were provoked to jealousy because the multitudes, the the Gentiles were flooding in to hear the word of God. And that upset them. They rejected Christ. Okay. So the, the gospel is God's power to save. It's his method of salvation, which is through faith, to all who believe, truly believe, and now he gives his third reason that he's not ashamed of the gospel, and it's this: it is God's revelation. The gospel is God's revelation. Verse 17: For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So here, brothers and sisters, is where we've arrived, which I to the place where I mentioned that excuse me, to the place I mentioned at the beginning, which is the central doctrine of all of Christianity, justification by faith alone. This incidentally is the very verse that God used to awaken a German monk named Martin Luther to save his soul. It was this verse. And you know what happened after that? That sparked the whole Protestant Reformation in Europe, right? In the 16th century. And it was just... His, his understanding, God opened his understanding of this very truth. So my prayer is God help us all to understand this because who knows the revival that that God can bring about through his people as they understand and love and herald his word. Right. OK, so the key question here is this. How can a man be made right with God? That was the central question of the Reformation, and that's the central question of this how can a man be put right with God? Of course that presupposes you understand that he's wrong with God. That's why we always start with the bad news first when we preach the gospel. But this is the verse that makes Christianity what it is. What separates it from every other belief system in the world. And the answer is this, the just shall live by faith, by faith alone for in it, the gospel for in it, that is to say the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, Righteousness, again, is that condition of acceptance with God. What he says is approved. It is another way of of, uh, putting it is this. It's a person who is in the condition that they ought to be before God. In other words, in the gospel, God's own standard of righteousness is revealed. And the word for revealed is this, apocalypto. It's the same word that's used for the last book of the Bible, Revelation. That's where we get the word apocalypse from. What does apocalypse mean? It means an unveiling of something that was previously hidden, veiled. So follow this train of thought. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteous standard of God is unveiled. Well, what's interesting here is Paul, when he says the righteous, the, uh, the righteous, excuse me, the just shall live by faith, he's quoting Habakkuk, that little prophet in the Old Testament that most people never read. Right? I spent some time with Habakkuk this week, more so than I had before, and i <laughs> praise God, he is a wonderful uh, Old Testament prophet, and Paul is quoting Habakkuk, saying the just shall live by faith. Now. What struck me this week was this. That concept that a man can only be put right with God by faith alone was known in the Old Testament. Habakkuk, he wrote it here. And Habakkuk lived around 600 BC, 600 years before Christ. Okay. Think about King David in Psalm 32 when he said, Blessed, happy is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. David lived a thousand years before Christ. So those truths... That God will justify a man by faith alone, not impute his sin to him, declare him righteous by faith, was known. It wasn't veiled. So what was veiled then is the question. Or maybe put it this way, who was veiled that has now been revealed? Look back at verse 16 of Romans 1. Paul calls this gospel the gospel of Christ. In verse 9, he called it the gospel of his Son, meaning God's Son. In verse 3, the gospel is concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In verse 1, the gospel is the gospel of God. Do you see what he's saying? Paul's saying that Jesus, who is God the Son, is himself the righteousness of God that has been unveiled. Remember the beginning of the Gospel of John? He came to his own, meaning to uh, the human race, and his own, that next word zooms in on his people, the Jews, did not receive him. They rejected him. But as many as received him, To them, he gave the right, the power, the authority to be called the sons of God, the children of God who believe what on his name, who believe on his name. (laughs) His name, brothers and sisters, has been revealed. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the son of David, the son of God. He is the righteousness of God. And how is this righteousness revealed? Well, Paul says from faith to faith, the righteousness of God. From faith to faith, that can also be translated by faith or from faith to faith. I think he's saying this. Jesus is the righteousness of God that has been revealed. And we understand that by faith. We understand that by faith. And so does everyone who believes from faith to faith to faith. You could think about it that way. Everyone who believes. So it doesn't matter if you're a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a Greek. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. It doesn't matter if you're slave or free. Anyone who believes is saved. Anyone who believes Jesus is the righteousness of God is saved. The gospel, loved ones, This good news concerning his son is that God unveils his son, Jesus, as the only righteous one who has ever lived in all of humanity. He is the perfect man. He's the God man who is in right relationship to God as Adam was before he fell. He came to do the will of his father. He always obeyed his father. And we see this. We understand this with eyes of faith, don't we? Because it's been granted to us to believe God has unstopped our ears he's opened our eyes spiritually he's softened our hearts he's dealt a blow with his hammer and he's crushed the rock that was in our chest and he has given us a heart of flesh to believe God to believe his word to believe who he's revealed himself to be in Christ you see here's the amazing part this knowledge that we embrace and feed on by faith saves us, actually saves us. It's the power of God in action. By believing who God has revealed himself to be in Christ, the object, and that it was the triune God who raised him from the dead, the work of God. We have been given genuine faith and eternal life. Praise the Lord could you could also think about it this way God gives the very righteousness that he requires of us that we can't produce by faith by believing him and that's the discovery that Luther made about this verse that's what freed him from his bondage Luther Luther if you read his account' deeply troubled as a monk he used to go to confession for Six hours a day, often um, almost every day. And in fact, he, he went so often and stayed so often, stayed so long that um, the priest in the confessional was wearied by Luther. He said, Brother Luther, come back when you have some serious sin to confess, adultery, uh, something. He said, everything that you're confessing, they're peccadilloes, just little sins. But Luther had this incredible Um, sense of guilt for his, about his own sin. And his thought was, I have to be able to confess. I have to remember everything that I confess. And he would leave the confessional and he would be so troubled because he would remember something else afterward that he should have confessed, but he didn't. And he began to think, how can I ever be saved? Because I may have omitted some confession somewhere along the way, or the priest who heard my confession may not have been in good standing with God himself. And so, my confession would not be valid with God. He was burdened deeply. And he had three crises in his life that the Lord used to bring Luther to true faith. And the third crisis was this. He read Romans 1, verse 17. And he came to this text that just shall live by faith. And I just want to read you, this is Luther's own words of how this impacted him. He says this, I greatly longed, to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God, because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God and the statement that, quote, the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. Isn't that wonderful? Luther realized that the righteousness that Paul was talking about in verse 17 is not the righteousness by which God is righteous for his own benefit, but a righteousness that he makes available to all who believe by faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. I mentioned that Paul quoted this from Habakkuk. You know, what's interesting is what was happening in Habakkuk's day. Habakkuk was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. Judah had become overrun by wickedness. This is right after King Josiah died. Josiah had made wonderful reforms for God in Judah. Josiah dies. And just like we see in Joshua's time, as soon as he dies, the people revert, right? Back to lawlessness, wickedness, idolatry. And uh, Habakkuk comes before the Lord and he says, Lord, there's violence and there's wickedness among your people. Um, Why are you silent? And God's answer is watch and be astounded for I work a work in your days that you would not believe though one were to tell you. And what he was speaking about was judgment that was coming from the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, right? God uh, brought that judgment upon Judah 586 BC. He carried them away into captivity to Babylon. But Habakkuk says, "Lord, you're holy You're of purer eyes than to behold evil. You can't even look upon evil. Why would you use a wicked nation like the Chaldeans to judge your people, Israel? And he says, Lord, why do you hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Hmm. Stop there. Habakkuk, is wicked Israel really more righteous than the Chaldeans? First is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Deuteronomy 27, 26. God's answer to Habakkuk was this. Write the vision. Write this prophecy, which is yet for an appointed time. It's not yet, but it will speak and not lie. It will tarry. It will seem to delay, but wait for it because it will surely come. And what's the message? It's this Habakkuk 2, 4. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. There's the connection. The just shall live by his faith. So the Lord says to Habakkuk, all the proud Habakkuk are unrighteous because they trust in themselves and not in the living God. But the one who trusts in the Lord, he's justified. He will live by God's righteousness. Whether it's the faithless in Judah, or it's the unbelieving Chaldeans, whether it's Jew or Gentile, it does not matter. All are unrighteous before the holy tribunal of God. All are unrighteousness before God. And judgment is coming for all who trust in themselves and not in the the living God. See, near term, that judgment was fulfilled. Judah, like I said, they were taken away, captive to Babylon. Long-term, the great day of judgment is coming for all. Every man must give an account of himself before God. When Paul preached to those Jews in Antioch and Pisidia in Acts 13, he also interestingly quoted Habakkuk. He quoted Habakkuk 1.5, which was, uh, Behold, you despisers, stop and see, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days that you will by no means believe though one would were to declare it to you. Now in Habakkuk that context is the Chaldeans are coming and they're going to destroy Judah. And they couldn't believe it. You're going to raise up the Chaldeans' god to destroy your people? But Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit attributes that prophecy to the Jews rejecting Christ as Messiah. They wouldn't believe in God's Messiah. Or that God had raised him from the dead, and so he's saying, Beware, judgment is coming upon all those who reject God's Messiah. In closing, brothers and sisters, Jesus said in Mark eight thirty eight, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed. When he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. Jesus is the gospel revelation to be ashamed of the gospel is to be ashamed of Jesus himself. Conversely, Matthew eleven six, and blessed is he who is not offended, who's not scandalized because of me. Those who ultimately are ashamed of Christ don't know Christ as Lord and Savior. They're not his. They're of the world. They're of the evil one. Loved ones, we should never feel ashamed of the gospel. Because it was Jesus who took our shame upon himself. He allowed himself to be shamed so that we would not have to endure the shame of the last day when we would be cast into outer darkness apart from him. Isaiah wrote some interesting detail about the Messiah's appearance, his face, when he was crucified. Do you remember? He said in Isaiah 52 just as many were astonished at you speaking of Messiah, so his visage, his countenance, his face was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. He was disfigured physically more than any other person has ever been. You would not have recognized him after he had been scourged. What a picture, brothers and sisters, of what Christ was willing to endure for us by taking our shame, the shame of our sin upon himself. Isaiah 53, he's he's despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. We didn't want to look upon his disfigurement because it was shameful. But listen to verse four. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. We saw him dying on the cross, paying for his own sins, that he was being smitten by the Lord for his own sin. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace. In other words, the punishment that was required that we might be put into right standing with God, justified, was upon him, on Jesus. And by his stripes, by his death, we are healed. Praise the Lord. The world looks at Jesus and they see a man who died for his own sin, and they look at him like Alexa Mena who worships his God. But to us, he is precious, is he not? Therefore, brothers and sisters, here's the encouragement. Here's the exhortation. The writer of Hebrews says, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. We're going to sing in just a moment a great hymn that speaks to this, the old rugged cross. To the old rugged cross, I will ever be true. It's shame and reproach gladly bear. Hmm. We who trust in Christ, we are baptized into him. That means that we share in his experience of death, his experience of shame. We should be willing to bear. Shouldn't be ashamed of it because he was bearing our shame, dying in our place. Let us become fools for Christ. Let us say, who cares what the world says and what they think of us? Let us become fools for Christ, because in so doing, we really become wise. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So the gospel is God's power, it's God's method, It's God's revelation. And as we already said, it's his message. It's all of God, right? Let us not be ashamed. Paul was a slave of Christ. And his burden was to do his master's will. To share this good news with the nations. God, help us to do the same. Especially when the pressures and the trials come. When we are tempted to be ashamed and to close our mouths. God, give us grace in those moments to speak boldly for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven. Lord, forgive us for ever feeling shame of your blessed son. Who is shamed for us. Who took the curse that should have fallen upon our heads and was hanged on a tree and bore the full cup of your wrath against sinners. And he drank it to the full, every last drop. Lord, because of his righteousness, we are made righteous, declared righteous, put in right standing with you by faith. And because he's paid our penalty, he's taken away our sins. He's taken away the punishment which was due us. We have been pardoned. Praise the Lord. Father, I pray that you would impress these words on our hearts, as you did with Martin Luther so many years ago. I pray that we would go forth in the power of your Spirit, living for Christ, communing with Christ, Being filled with the word of Christ, seeing his blessed face, living before him daily, not being ashamed of of Christ or of anyone else who bears the name of Christ and his testimony. Father, help us. Give us strength for we are weak. We confess it. But you are mighty. May you bring glory to yourself through your church and through this church here at Creekside. Thank you for these dear brothers and sisters and thank you for meeting with us in your word today. May we think on these things, bring them to our remembrance. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.